morning, church. Good to see all of you. Um, those of you who are able to stand, <laughs> not just because of Jesus, but because you don't have the flu. So I'm glad that you're here. We are talking about change, and we're talking about movement. If you haven't heard, we are moving on March the 22nd to the Tulsa Ballet on 101st and Aspen. We're very excited about this. Um, lots of details that are going on with that. And of course, if you have questions, you can certainly ask any one of the staff members. We'd be delighted to chat with you about it. But it's not the change that's the problem. It's the transition, right? It's all the emotions. It's all the other stuff that goes along that will kill you. <laughs> At least it seems like you. That'll kill you. And so we're talking a little bit about transition. And we're investigating Moses and the Exodus kind of as our guide. So, you know, remember, there's Moses. Moses has this extraordinary experience with a burning bush. And it's not that the bush, bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. That's what the issue is here. And, of course, when he goes to check the thing out, it starts talking to him, which is a little weird. And so he has this conversation with a burning bush that isn't, uh, that isn't being consumed. And he finds out that God wants to send him to Africa. Yay! And he doesn't want to go to Africa. And so he comes up with a whole series of excuses. You don't talk very well, and I got this problem and that. And, and God just starts eliminating each one of those. And so finally, in Exodus chapter 4, it appears that Moses agrees to go do this thing that God has asked him to do. It's fascinating. Because all the fear, all the shame is still present, and he's, he's very aware of all of this. And of course, you know the rest of the story, right? He has a great time on his mission trip to Africa. The, the, he tells the Jews, that um, the Israelites, that, that, that they're going to be free, and they're thrilled by this. And they're thrilled that Moses is the guy who's leading them out, and and then he goes and he talks to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh wonders what he's been thinking. And he goes, of course, let them go. It's fine. It'll be great. And they have this, uh, this, this journey they have to take. So they all call two men in a truck, and the, the transition is easy. And some of them can afford to have pods. And, and so the pods actually get delivered, and, and then they go right back to the promised land that they've they've known about all along and it's a land flowing with milk and honey and everything is great, right? No, of course not. Because you've watched the Charlton Heston movie. I know. I know you have, right? Not quite. Not quite. Both Israel and Pharaoh needed a certain amount of convincing, I think. And so we find out, as we move through the book of Exodus, we find out but there's a series of plagues that God chooses to visit upon Egypt to get their collective attention. Now, don't miss this. This is important. We're going to come back to this a little bit later. It's not just Pharaoh that he's convincing. He's got to convince the Israelites that there's a plan and that there's a God and that there's something going on here. He's got to do both. So he has to get their attention. So here's what we find. This is Exodus chapter 7. I want you to see this. Moses having this discussion with Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not having any of it. And so Moses raises his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile. And all the water was changed into blood. 
The fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. Okay, so first of all, can we just say, ew? I mean, ugh. I mean, that's just kind of gross. And it's interesting to me that God goes after the Nile River first. Because nothing gets someone else's attention like hitting them in the pocketbook. And you have to understand what's happening here. It hurts the most in the wallet, and that's exactly what the Nile was. It was an economic engine. Let me, let me show you this. This is a picture from NASA, which I thought was kind of cool. It shows uh, the Nile River, and up uh, at the top is the, the River Delta. And you can see that everything else seems like this like sandy yellow color, but all along the Nile River, the, the river is blue and it's green by it. And it's been like that for centuries, actually for millennia. It's been that way. And because the Nile River was predictable, it was a constant source of fresh water, and there was always food in Egypt because it was the breadbasket because of this predictability. And so the Egyptians did this marvelous job of harnessing that river to irrigate their land. And, and so earlier in the book of Genesis in particular, if there's famine up in another part of the world, like, say, Canaan, Israel, they would all come to Egypt because they know there was food there because they had the Nile River. It, is an econo- it made Egypt an economic and military superpower, at least at the time, world-renowned incredibly um, wealthy part of the world. And so, God goes after the Nile and he he has Moses turn it to blood. Not water, blood. And the thing that this does, and you have to understand this, is without the Nile River, without that economic engine, Egypt is vulnerable. This is a big deal. And Pharaoh knows it, and so do Pharaoh's enemies. And Pharaoh knows that his enemies know this too. Does that make sense? So you've got this thing that's happening to the very, uh, pardon the word, lifeblood economically, and God turns it to blood. Fascinating. Fascinating. And the other part of this, and I think this is where, for me, it gets more fascinating, is that the Nile was not only an economic engine, but it was also part of the ancient Egyptian religious belief. So here's, um, this, this is where they had this god uh, who protected the source of the river. His name was, was Kum. He's a handsome fellow, isn't he? He was the, the ram god. He was the guardian of the Nile source. I don't think he did a very good job, do you? Because like, the river's like blood now. It's not really a river. So, yeah. Did he fall asleep? I mean, what happened? Because, you know, the guardian of the source of the river, he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And, and then there's, an, there's this other um, god who's in charge of the actual flooding. So this, this major event that would happen, you know, periodically throughout the year was governed by another, another goddess. Um, and, and her name was, um, I think it's Hoppy. I think the A is uh, short A, Hoppy. Um, god of the Nile flood. And what's so fascinating is that every time Hoppy is depicted in color, she's always blue, not red. Interesting. Hmm. 
least I find it kind of interesting. So there's this, this next one. Um, Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of the Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land. Again, ew. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses. So Moses prays and asks, you know, because he's, he's negotiating with Pharaoh here. And he prays and says, you know, get rid of the frogs. So Lord does that. The frogs died in their houses, <laughs> in their courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps and the land reeked of them. Wow. <laughs> oh, to have a, like, service master franchise at that point, right? Wow. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. You know, um, there's this fertility goddess. Her name is uh, uh, Hecat. And when she's depicted in all of the hieroglyphics, she has the human body and the head of a frog. Even her name, Hecat, sounds like croaking. Hecat, Hecat, Hecat. It's the sound that the frogs make. Interesting. Name sounds like that. And then Aaron stretched out his hand again with the staff and struck the dust of the ground. Gnats came, out, uh, came on people and animals. Um, by the way, this word gnats can um, sometimes mean lice. That's pleasant, isn't it? All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. When, when we lived in um, Savannah, uh, Georgia, <clears throat> the local baseball team was called the Savannah Sand Gnats. Because every year, um, there was this period of about two weeks where you would get out of the dust these little things called sand gnats. And you could always tell when the sand gnats were out because everybody, because everybody wore shorts, but everybody had these little red dots all the way up to their knees because they could only go about two, two feet tall. And so if you had little ones, you had to be careful because they'd get up a little bit higher. But they'd come up and they'd bite you and then they, you know, they'd die. They didn't last very long. It was about a two, maybe three-week period. Annoying, oh my gosh, were they annoying. Not quite as bad as mosquitoes buzzing in your ear, but you get the idea, right? So <laughs> here we have Aaron stretching out his hand, or the staff, I should say. Um, and he strikes, he strikes the, the ground and the dust becomes gnats or lice, or something really, really, really unpleasant. Now notice it talks about dust. Um, so my best friend lived in Cairo, Egypt for a while, and he was exp explaining to me <laughs> the problem that dust is there. Because there's a lot of sand in the desert. Have you noticed that? Have you ever been around one? Yeah. So, <laughs> so here we have him striking the dust and it becomes gnats. Um, there was a god, his name was Set. He was the god of the desert. All of the sand, all of the dust. He was lord over that. A couple of other things too. He was um, not what you would call a minor god. He was a god of the desert. And if gnats or lice weren't enough, then in... Uh, Verse 24, dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials throughout Egypt. The land was ruined by the flies. <laughs> oh, man. There is nothing more annoying in the middle of the night when there's a fly buzzing around. Can I get an amen on that one, right? Oh, my gosh. This is why you need to have cats, because cats actually hunt flies. 
and it's fun to watch. And if you need a cat, we can hook you up. So just let me know, all right? The point is, is that there's these flies all around. That's, that's just, oh, I can't even imagine what that was like. Uadich was the goddess of marshes and also the goddess of swarms because that's where insects dwelled. And, and sometimes, like in this picture, she was depicted with wings. In fact, there was some evidence to suggest that in certain hieroglyphics, her symbol is that of a fly. Interesting. By the way, Israel experiences each of the first four of these plagues, but not the last six. My guess is that they saw Moses call them down and pray them away and probably had a certain amount of convincing. Hmm. Let's keep reading, shall we? Because this is kind of cool. All the livestock of the Egyptians died. This is number five. But not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Well, that's interesting, right? So here we have the shift that's going on. So all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but the animals that the Israelites had, they, they didn't. So um, this is interesting because here's Hathor. Um, she's a sky goddess and the goddess of cattle, and she's always depicted with a cow's head. I feel bad for her, don't you? <laughs> it's a cow head. Not as bad as the frog with the cow head. Exodus 9, so they took soot from a furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Moses tossed it into the air and festering boils broke out on people and animals. Not just boils, festering boils. That means they're infected. So they all have like the skin disease. Ah, yuck. Can't even imagine this. In fact, um, during the first couple of these, uh, Pharaoh's magicians are able to, to more or less do the same thing that... Uh, that Moses was doing, and that kind of trails off, you don't hear it. Here, in, ver- in chapter 9, it says the boils were so bad on the magicians, they couldn't even stand in the presence of Moses. They were just that uncomfortable. Couldn't even show up. Left the field of battle, right? I mean, they just wouldn't, they couldn't do it. So, <clears throat> um, there's a number of, of gods that might be involved here, but it's likely Isis. There she is. She's got wings. She was the goddess of healing. She's probably the most prominent of the ones that are mentioned. Uh, There was also a god of pestilence, and and he would have been involved in things like boils. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail throughout Egypt. Hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every single tree. The deities here are getting bigger and more famous, and now Osiris thought that he oversaw crops and fertility. (laughs) He thought he did, anyway. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt, and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Hmm. There's a sky goddess who was in charge of the winds. Her name was Newt. She was the blue one there. She also, however, may also be the only Norwegian Egyptian god. The name like Newt. 
See, you know, it's funny because if we were up north in Minnesota, that joke would have just killed. <laughs> K-N-U-T-E. Newt. No, this is Newt. This guy got us. She thought she was in charge. And the ninth one. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky in total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet, all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Now, this is where it be- begins to get even more serious. Because, you know, we think in terms of darkness, like, okay, you know, darkness. But if you're an ancient Egyptian, and you live in the desert, on the equator, you see the sun a lot. And in fact, the chief god was the sun god, and his name was Ra. And he had a son named Horus. And Horus has an eye that sees everything. And so God blotted out Horus's eye and blotted out the sun god, the chief of all the gods. And then the final plague At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. All of it. And to, to us, that's horrific, and it is. It's a horrific thing. And it really challenges virtually the entire pantheon of, the, of Egyptian religious belief especially Pharaoh, because Pharaoh himself was considered a deity, and so was his son. Don't miss that. Even Pharaoh's son. In fact, this is a hieroglyphic. Horus is on the right, Set is on the left, and they are adoring Ramses, who would have been the Pharaoh at this time, because he was a god too. Do you get the sense that the plagues were more than just for dramatic effect? This was Yahweh stretching out his mighty hand, taking on the entire pantheon of Egypt. Not only did he humble Pharaoh, but all of Pharaoh's magicians and all the priests and the priestesses all of those religious beliefs. You see, here's the thing that you gotta remember. This was not a mission trip to Africa. This was an invasion. Do you see that? This is an invasion that's happening. God is invading Egypt to rescue his people. And here's the good news today. Here's the good news. That God wants to be with you. That God is here right now, and he wants to be with you. Let that sink in for a second. I I can't even understand what it would be like to have darkness that thick where you can't see in the middle of the day, and yet somebody somewhere else has... I mean, that just makes no sense to me. That God who did that, who commands things like water and 
and locusts and flies and tea tiny little things to big things. That God wants to be with you. Hmm. You know, it strikes me, as I said earlier, um, Israel endured the first four plagues. I mean, they really did. They, they endured it. They had to deal with flies. <clears throat> Maybe to be convinced. But, but think for a second. You've got a group of people who have been enslaved, in bondage for 300 years, something like that. And here, this person who has a reputation, not a very good one, comes in and says, yeah, so the Lord of your, your, your great, 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 great grandfather wants to free you. Well, that sounds okay, but bondage is normal. So that's going to take some convincing. And that's why I think that they had to endure those first, first four plagues so that they understood that God was serious, that Yahweh was here, that he was trying to get their attention too. And so I wonder, this kind of struck me the other day as I was thinking about this, but it, I wonder, maybe God has to get our attention sometimes too. I, you know, I can't answer for you, but I'm, I'm just going to be honest. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. <laughs> Sometimes, see, we've got this thing at my house. Um, there's a honey-do list. Do, guys, do you have a honey-do list at your house? Yeah, and it's funny that the honey-do list, when, it, when the task is on there for too long of a time, it moves to a different list. In our house, it's called the two-by-four list. <laughs> honey, get it done before I hit you with a two-by-four, right? Sometimes I don't understand just how important that task is. And depending on the importance, will determine the amount of time that it stays on one list before it moves to the next, right? Sometimes God has to get my attention because I don't understand how important things are. And so it is with all of us. So perhaps, I don't know, perhaps, the pain we experience sometimes in our own lives, is God trying to challenge our idols? Because we all have them. Every one of us. We've got something that we set before God. I do. You do. It's different for every person. And sometimes when we're experiencing that stress and that pain, it's God challenging that idol, saying, yeah, you don't need that. It doesn't make the pain good, but at least what it does is that it explains why you're feeling that way. And so when you're experiencing something, whatever it happens to be, and it's one of those things that just sticks with you. You have one of those? Like, I just can't get rid of this thing. That's God poking at saying, maybe there's an idol here. Maybe that's the first response to say, Okay, if this thing keeps coming up, God, is there something here that you're trying to challenge? Is there something here that I have placed before you that I think that is more important than what you are? I don't know about you, but that makes me a little uncomfortable. It makes me a lot uncomfortable. But I think it's a great question to ask to say, Lord, are you challenging an idol here? Is there an idol? Is there something here that doesn't belong there? 
Are you challenging that? He wants to be with you. And he doesn't want you to be in bondage anymore. So, yeah, it might be painful, but at the end of it, something better than you can probably imagine. You know, and I, I, I don't know where you are today, and I don't know all the stuff you struggle with. I mean, I, mean I, I might know you fairly well, and I still don't know all the things you struggle with. I know I got my stuff. I got that stuff tucked away in a corner I don't want anybody else to know about. Why? Because I'm embarrassed, and I don't, I don't like it. And we all have those, those types of issues. And yet, it's funny to me because those places where I find myself struggling the most is usually the place where I've got something that God wants to deal with. So I don't know where you are. But in a group this size, statistically speaking, I know right now that you all got something that you're wrestling with. It's the thing that keeps coming up over and over and over again. What's that thing? You know what it is. I don't have to tell you. There's this thing that keeps coming up, and you're wondering, you're wondering why. You know, for some people, it might be, um, it's really funny because you know, as I'm thinking about this, certain I- ideas are popping in my head. But um, for some people, it's like there's not enough money. There's never enough money. Money, 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 money. It's this thing that comes up, and you're wondering why. Because you're working so hard over and over and over again, and yet there never seems to be enough. And maybe that pain that you're experiencing is because there's an idol there that God is challenging. Or maybe for another person, the other word, word that keeps coming up is loneliness. And somebody who just feels lonely about something, and, and maybe there's a, a, a reason for that. And, and no, I'm not trying to blame the victim here. That's not what I'm suggesting. But maybe there's something underneath the surface that God's poking and prodding at, and he's doing it because it's keeping you from him, and he doesn't want that for you. And for another person, it might be achievement, where you feel like, oh, I've got to get this done, I've got to get that done, I've got to get this. You know, you know who you are. There's that thing that just keeps driving you over and over, and, and I think it has to, to do with perfectionism, that you, you, you just can't let it go until it's absolutely perfect. And, and God's like, it doesn't have to be perfect. I love you anyway. It doesn't have to be perfect. That's what he's saying to you right now. So wherever you are in that, um, spend some time asking God, Lord, is there an idol here that you need to knock down? Is there something here that's keeping me from you? So I don't know what it is for you. Um, It's probably something. You know, as always, I'll be in the back and I'm, I'm more than happy to pray with you because God doesn't want to embarrass you. He wants you to be free. He doesn't want you to be in bondage. The same God who rescued Israel wants to rescue you.